0: of the miraculous because as we begin this last chapter in the book of Acts chapter 28, we are confronted by a series of miracles and in fact a rather large grouping of miracles and you'll need your Bibles open to the book of Acts chapter 28 for this morning. Last week we looked at the apostle Paul getting bit by a viper on the hand and shaking that viper off into the fire and the Lord sovereignly, graciously, miraculously powerfully protecting him from the effects of the venom and any ill harm that might have come to him as a result of that. And today we are going to be looking at verses 7 through 10. And I asked you last week, and I just want to remind you, next Sunday is our Resurrection Sunday. That's next Lord's Day. So we're going to be looking at the miracle of resurrection. The following Sunday is sort of a um, stepping back from the book of Acts and looking at the entire book. And the all of the miracles in the book of Acts, it's not going to be any longer than a normal sermon, but we're going to do it in sort of an overview, a very cursory fashion, look at all of the teaching on miracles in the subject of the book of Acts and see what does that tell us about miracles for today. Now that sermon, and that, that Lord's Day two weeks from now, I offered to you that you could submit questions if you have questions about miracles or miracle workers or what about miracles today. I haven't received any of this last week, so... It might be that you know everything about miracles. We've covered them all. We've been through some of this stuff before, so you have no questions, and, and you got it all down, in which case two weeks from today is going to be a real bore for all of you as we go back through some of those things. Or it may be that you think you know about miracles, and you think you understand the answers to the questions, but you really don't, in which case two weeks from now is going to be quite a shocker and a surprise to you as you find out some things about miracles that maybe you didn't know. So if you have questions about miracles, give them to me in writing or email them to me. Nothing anonymous, please. Maybe that's why I haven't got anything... Nothing. Nobody wants to hand me anything that's not anonymous. But I don't want to leave the subject of miracles in the book of Acts and leave with it a bunch of unanswered questions because I may be addressing things that maybe you aren't thinking of and you may be thinking of things that I haven't thought to address. And so I'd appreciate the, the preemptive feedback, if you will, as to what questions you might have about it because as I look ahead at what we're going to be covering over the course of the next two years, it might be a couple years before we deal with anything pertaining to miracles or signs or wonders after the book of Acts. Because this section of miracles in Acts 28, beginning of verse 7, or beginning all the way through the first 10 verses, I should say, is the last of the miraculous that we read in the New Testament. Not only is it the last in the book of Acts, but chronologically speaking, we don't know of any, in Scripture, we don't know of any miracles that occurred after this. Now, that's not to say that none did. And that's not to say that none of the apostles did any miracles after Acts 28. That's not my case. But it is something that I want you to observe, and I just want you to keep filed away in the back of your mind, that this is the last recorded miracle done by an apostle in the New Testament. We're going to find out in a couple of weeks if that observation actually has any sort of, if we can make anything out of it. I don't want you to make too much out of it yet, but I just want you to file that away. This is the last miracle that we read of in the hands of an apostle in the first century of the early church. So Acts chapter 28, last Sunday, was Paul being... Bitten by the viper, he landed on the shore of Malta. And he gathering sticks. The natives were friendly to him. Kindled a fire. Uh, picking up sticks, got bit by the snake, and the snake uh, clasped onto his hand. And he shook it off into the fire. And the Maltans began to say, "Well, he may have survived the sea voyage, but the God of Justice has not allowed him to live. So he must have been a murderer. Something bad happened to him. It must be because he did something heinous, something wrong, something sinful, like murdered some somebody." And then after the there was no ill effects from the venom whatsoever nothing from the snake bite no swelling he didn't fall down dead immediately like they were expecting they changed their minds and said well it must be a god now i review all of that to bring you up to speed in case you weren't here last week or in case you were here last week and you slept through the whole thing which is possible sometimes i do that i bring you up to speed cuz we're beginning now with verse 7 verse 7 and here's a cluster of miracles that we find at the end of the book of acts that we haven't seen since way back in verse in chapter 19 Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him after he had prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured, They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. So they landed on the shore, and next to the shore where they had landed, and somewhere in the neighborhood of where they had kindled a fire and where the viper had bitten Paul, there was some lands that belonged to a man named Publius. Now Publius is apparently a wealthy man, apparently a powerful man, which is evident from the title that Luke gives him, the leading man or the chief man of the island. I think the NIV says something like chief citizen or leading citizen of the island. That's Publius. So Publius is a high-ranking Roman official. In that day, Malta as an island was ruled by Rome. And Malta had a man who was kind of like a proconsul who stayed on the island and administered all the affairs of the island and justice and regulated commerce and, and all of the affairs of the people on the island in Rome's stead. So he's kind of like Agrippa Felix Festus in that sense that he's Rome's representative on the island. That's Publius. He's apparently a wealthy man because he owns some lands there. And because they landed on the beach that was near some lands that Publius owned, Publius showed them, exercised hospitality to them. Now what's interesting to me is, I I look at Publius, and Publius is very, very similar to Sergius Paulus back in Acts chapter 13. If you look at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, one thing that stands out to me that I think is very curious, very interesting, and very telling about Paul, is the number of very influential people that Paul was able to impact and able to have access to. I follow the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. I listen to his radio program and listen to him quite often. And as you listen to Ravi talk and tell stories, what is really fascinating about him is the different arenas in which God has given him access. He talks to leaders of terrorist organizations, heads of state, presidents, prime ministers, the leaders of the UN, all of the intelligentsia, people from from uh, universities all over the world. This guy hobnobs with some of the the, the brightest and the best and the most elite people on the face of this globe. Only God can open up a door like that. I've never even met anybody powerful, let alone had the opportunity to share the gospel with them. But look at the Apostle Paul as well. Paul was a, a man just like that. You go back and start in chapter 13 and read through all the people that Paul had access to. Leaders of religious movements like the Asiarchs in Acts chapter 19. He hobnobbed with Gamaliel and Annas and Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin in the early years. He had access to men like Felix and Festus and Agrippa and Sergius Paulus on the island of Cyprus. And now another proconsul, another head of an island, Publius, on the island of Malta. This guy had access. And listen, here's one thing that's incredible. Do you realize that before the end of Paul's life, he would stand in the presence of Nero and preach Christ? He would stand in the presence of the Roman emperor, the most and one of the most powerful and the most depraved and the most wicked of all Roman emperors, arguably. And he would stand there and he would present the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the emperor of the Roman Empire. That is unbelievable. Only God can open a door like that. That's the type of access that Paul had. It was like if there was a popular person around, it was like a magnet for Paul. He would just sort of like a satellite eventually glom onto that guy and he had the opportunity to preach Christ to all of those people. Well, Sergius uh, Publius is a man like Sergius Paulus. The last time Paul met a proconsul of an island was back in Acts chapter 13. Remember, he's making his way across the island of Cyprus, and they get to the city of Paphos, and they ran across a guy named Bar Jesus. He was a Jewish false prophet magician, and he worked in the court of Sergius Paulus, who was a man of intelligence. Remember that? And Paul and Barnabas are sharing the gospel with Sergius Paulus, and Bar-Jesus begins to oppose them and contradict them and argue against them, and Paul finally had enough, and he turned to him and said, Be full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, and struck him blind. And then Sergius Paulus believed. Those are the, that's the type of things that Paul did. And here Paul is on another island with another proconsul, and he's in the midst of this man, and he performs another miracle. So what happens? Look at verse 7. Sergius Paulus was the leading man on the island, or sorry, Pope Publius was the leading man of the island, and he welcomed us and he entertained us courteously three days. And it happened. to supper right there. I love it when the Bible uses phrases like that. And it happened. As if the whole thing is governed by happenstance. You notice that? And it happened. It just so happened. You and I know that nothing just so happens. And Luke is not trying to communicate to us that this was all happenstance. You and I are designed to see the hand of the Lord in this, in the ironic and sort of slightly understated way in which Luke brings this across. It just so happened. It just so happened that we were at sea for a month. It just so happened that we were tossed about like a buoy in a wave pool for 14 days. It just so happened that we crashed land at the beach. It just so happened that the natives were friendly. It just so happened that we were only 60 miles off course. It just so happened that some land was owned next to the place where we crashed by a man named Publius. And it just so happened that his father just so happened to be sick at that time. Starting to see the hand of God in all of this, right? It happened, Luke says. That the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. Now, this is Dr. Luke's medical assessment of the situation, right? Dr. Luke has shown up. He's there with Paul. He's there with Aristarchus. He's there with Julius. And here's something that I don't know. I don't know if Publius decided to host and provide shelter and provision for all 276 people who were on board the ship. He could have, he was wealthy enough, the leading man of the island, a a representative of Rome, he could have done that and paid for it out of the royal treasury as a gift to all of these people. But he shows hospitality to the Apostle Paul, and God is going to be no man's debtor. So when you show hospitality to a servant of the Lord and you extend grace whether you're a believer or not, I believe that God blesses people for that. And that's what God is going to do to Publius' his father as he's lying sick in bed. Paul goes in, and I think Luke is likely with him. Luke is an eyewitness to this, and he sees that Publius's father has dysentery and a recurrent fever. Today, on the island of Malta, they have what they refer to as the molten fever. And it is a fever and a dysentery that comes when people drink the, the goat's milk of the goats on the island of Malta. Today, it's not the threat that it used to be. It's not the danger that it used to be because it's easily prevented and far more easily cured. But in Paul's day, it was a serious threat. So he had molten fever. He had been drinking goat's milk. He had this recurrent fever and he had dysentery. Now, if you don't know what dysentery is, you do know what a dictionary is. So go home and look up diction, dic- dysentery because I don't want to describe it to you. But he had a recurrent fever and he had dysentery. And that's Luke's medical assessment. And Paul comes into the situation and the first thing that he does is he sees Publius' father and he prays. Now, there are other times that Paul healed people that he didn't pray beforehand. But why do you think he prays this time? When the viper bit his hand on the beach... And he suffered no ill effects from it. A miracle that was done, not by Paul, but to Paul by God. What did the natives, what did the islanders, the people on the island, what did they think? Oh, he's a god. The first thing that Paul does before he performs a miracle in the presence of these polytheistic, superstitious people who would probably obviously not get the point of the miracle and the purpose of the miracle is that he prays. He begins to pray for Publius, pray for himself. I don't know what he prayed, but he prayed. And I think he prayed because Paul recognized that the power to heal this man was going to come from God, not from him. And Paul, obviously, in praying, would communicate to them, I'm not of myself the source of this healing. I am not the one who is doing this. Somebody else is doing this. This would keep Publius and everybody else from getting superstitious and begin to think that Paul himself was deity. So he prayed, and he laid hands on Publius' father, and the fever and the dysentery left him instantly. Now, word got out, right? That's what the text says. Everybody else on the island began to hear that this had happened and that this was going on. Now, Publius was a popular man. He's the leading man of the island. And when the leading man of the island's father gets sick, everybody knows about it. And everybody has heard about the the 276 people who were stranded on the island and shipwrecked on the island. People had heard about that. And now people are beginning to hear that, hey, one of these guys out of the 276 came in and he prayed and he laid hands on Publius' father and the man was healed. What's incredible is that Publius with the... With the problem of his father and all that went with dealing with his father's illness in his own home was still showing hospitality to two hundred and seventy six people. But people began to talk about this and it circulated amongst the island, and verse 10 says, or verse 9 says everybody was coming from all over the island. People were coming to Paul and they were getting healed. And he was healing them. Now here's something that I want to throw out, because I've always wondered this, and I don't know when else I would say this in dealing with miracles, so I'll just sort of do it as an aside here. No extra charge for this one. I always wonder, how did miracle workers like the apostles, how did they know that God was going to perform a miracle through them? How did they know that? You walk into Publius's father's room, and he's lying there with dysentery and a recurring fever, and knocking on death's door from all apparent purposes. How did the apostle Paul know that in praying and laying his hands on him that God was going to do the work of healing? How did they know just to speak and that God would do that? Did they... Did they get a revelation? Did they? Was it a voice they heard? Did they see a sign? Did an angel whisper in their ear? How did they know that? I don't know. I've never had that gift. So I don't know how they knew that they were going to do that. But I do know that the apostles were not able to heal everybody that they wanted to. Why do I say that? Because remember what Paul told Timothy? Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Why didn't Paul just heal Timothy? In the in epistles to Timothy, Paul says, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Why did you leave him sick, Paul? Why didn't you heal him? To the Galatians, he said, it was because of a bodily illness that I came up to you the first time to preach the gospel to you. When he landed on the shores of Pamphylia, he came down with what many people, and I would concur, think was malaria. And so he went up into the higher, drier climates in the cities of Galatia, and there he was healed, there he got over the malaria and preached the gospel to the Galatian cities up there. It was because of a bodily illness. Why didn't Paul just heal his own bodily illness? The apostles could not heal everybody that they wanted to heal. It's not that they walked in and they just did these things. It was the power of God that was doing it through them. How did they know it was God's will to heal a certain individual? We don't read of the apostle Paul coming in to any place, or any apostle for that matter, coming into any place and saying, look, I think I might be able to heal you, so I'm going to say the words, I'm going to do this, put, lay my pray, lay my hands on you. No, it didn't work. Well, sorry. We don't read of that. When they set out to heal somebody, they healed them. Somehow they knew that that was God's will to heal that individual at that time. That's what Paul did with Publius. Now think of it, Luke says that they were cured. Think of it from Luke's perspective, you're a doctor. You show up on the shore, you come into Publius' house, you're having dinner, and Publius happens to mention my father-in-law is really sick. And so you're Dr. Luke and you walk in and you see him lying in the bed, he's got dysentery, he's got a recurring fever, and they're putting wet things on his forehead and he's sick, he's ill, he's dizzy, he's all of that, and dehydrated, and as a doctor, what, what do you do? diagnose the situation. How long have you been this? What did you eat? What did you drink? What have you done to cure this? And you you kind of go into action. That's what doctors do. They just kind of want to go into action, help the situation. And so you begin to diagnose it, start suggesting treatments, and in walks Paul, prays, lays hands on him, boom, what's for dinner? It's over with. And you're Luke thinking, he stole my thunder. Stole my thunder. And there's a doctor that's traveling with a healer who has the ability to walk in and totally cure people with the laying on of hands. And from a medical perspective, from Luke's perspective, Paul did this not only to Publius' father. He did this to people who were coming to him from all over that island. An island nine miles wide, 18 miles long. People were coming to him and if they had diseases, they were being healed. And Paul was healing them. Now there's a couple observations that I want to make just from this passage that are germane to the subject of miracles. The first one is this. There is in Scripture no pattern... There is in Scripture no pattern for performing miracles. Even in Paul's life. Acts chapter 14, he walks into the city of Lystra. He sees a cripple. And uh, Luke says, he shouted. Paul called to him in a loud voice and said, stand up and walk. He stood up and walked. Didn't lay hands. No prayer. He just shouted out in a loud voice, stand up and walk. Acts chapter um, 19, the handkerchiefs. Paul's working on the marketplace, sweating, and wipes the handkerchief. And people are sneaking these off and taking them. To people, people are getting healed through the handkerchiefs, and demons coming out. And Paul's not even present. Acts chapter 20, Eutychus falls out of the the window, the third story window, and hits the hits the pavement dead. The apostle Paul runs out, falls on him, embraces him, and God does a miracle through him. There, here, Paul prays and then lays hands. What's the pattern? You know, there are schools and there are churches and religious movements that teach classes on how to do miracles how to heal the sick and how to raise the dead my question is what do you teach is it through handkerchiefs is it through laying on of hands is it through shouting out at somebody or do you try everything and there was no pattern to jesus's miracles either there are times when he simply said your sins are forgiven get up and walk and there are other times when he took a spit and he made mud and wiped them on people's eyes what's the pattern there's no pattern and the fact that there's no pattern in scripture indicates to us a couple things First of all, miracles were designed to point to God, not to a pattern, not to a function, not to a mantra, not to some systematic thing that you and I can do to effect a miracle. They were designed to glorify God and point to God. It wasn't like you went A, B, C, push the button, and X, Y, Z comes out. There's nothing to duplicate. There's no pattern. There's no mantra. Do you remember the seven sons of Sceva who tried to duplicate Paul's miracles in Acts chapter 19? What happened to them? They got stripped, whipped, and sent out of the house laughing, humiliated. Why? Because they thought it was just a matter of a mantra. We adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, blah, 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 come out of him. And the <laughs> demon said, you're a joke. And they took him to school. Spanked him in a bad way. There's no pattern. You can't teach that. Why? Because miracles are not something that you and I can do through a mantra, through a pattern, or through a system of ABC one two three, and now we do it, and we perform the miracle. The second thing that that should indicate to us, the fact that there are no patterns in Scripture for healing people, is that it indicates to us something that the apostles, I think, believed about miracles. I think the apostles believed that when they died off, that that miraculous gift was going to die off. You know why? Because Paul never told Timothy, here's how you do it. He never taught Titus, here's how you do it. He never said to Luke or Aristarchus, he never wrote, you will search the New Testament in vain for instructions on how to do miracles. It's not there. The apostles never communicated that to the next generation of how to pick up that ministry and carry it on. They didn't. They didn't tell Timothy, here's what you do. Here's what you say. Here's how you know who to cure and who not to cure. Here's what to expect. Here's what will go through your mind. Here's what to look out for. didn't do any of that. There's just no pattern in the New Testament. Second, this is the second observation that's germane to the subject of miracles, and it is this. Miracles in the New Testament were instantaneous and they were complete. Instantaneous and complete. You didn't have Paul walking in and healing Publius and saying, okay, now that you've got your healing, I want you to listen to the doctor because he's going to tell you what to do. He's going to treat you. After three or four weeks, you keep claiming your healing by faith and it'll come. It wasn't that at all. One minute he had dysentery, the next minute, nothing. One minute he has a fever, the next instant it's gone. They were instant and they were complete. One minute a man can't walk, the next minute he is leaping for joy in the temple courtyards. One minute he can't see, the next instant he has perfect vision. Instant and complete. Jesus never went up to somebody and said, I know that your eyesight is poor, but I'm going to heal you to the point where you don't need glasses anymore. You'll still be able to see even without your glasses. No, He took blind people and made them see with 20-20 perfect vision. That's the type of healing, instantaneous and complete, no relapses. You know, if you follow the ministries of um, modern faith healers like Benny Hinn and that whole lot of them, what you'll find is that people end up dying from the diseases that they were healed of last week at uh, at the big meeting. And we can understand human nature that everybody on the island would come flocking to the Apostle Paul because... Whenever we hear that somebody has the gift of miracles and you take somebody who really has an illness and a disease and there's something in our human nature that wants to be healed so much, we want to believe that this individual has the power to do it and they will flock to that individual. If you doubt me, turn on a Benny Hinn crusade. If you can stand to watch an hour of it, just watch it. The difference between Paul and Benny Hinn is that Paul had a genuine gift whereby God genuinely healed people in a genuine manner of their illnesses, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Benny Hinn is not, he is a charlatan, false teacher. But you take people who have illnesses, and the illnesses are very real, whether they're cancer or some other illness, and what they desperately want is to be healed. And so they begin to fall into that subtle trap that maybe this guy does have that gift. And I just go and I'll just go and try it. And they go and try it and they put all their hopes and bank all of their money and bank all of their faith into that individual. And they don't have that gift and you follow their ministry and you watch the results of it and people relapse and they say, well, you didn't, you didn't have faith to keep your healing. You see that in the New Testament ever? You don't see that ever in the New Testament. Healings were instantaneous and they were complete. Now there's something curious from Acts 28 that is lacking and from what I know about Luke and from what we've read all the way through this book for the first 27 chapters, it's very It's very obviously lacking, and it's sort of odd to me that Luke doesn't include any mention of this. Do you notice something that's lacking in the first ten verses? Maybe you caught it. Do you notice that there is no mention of any teaching, preaching, or evangelism? Do you notice that? I'm a detailed guy, and I ask the question, why? Why does Luke leave that out? I cannot in my mind conceive that the Apostle Paul could stay on that island for three months and have people coming to him needing physical healing and that he would be remiss and that he would neglect to share with them the real spiritual healing that they needed. But Luke doesn't mention anything about preaching ministry or teaching ministry or any kind of evangelism. And further beyond even that, Luke doesn't mention anything about a church being planted on the island of Malta. Do you notice that? No mention of converts, no mention of a church being established or elders being chosen or anything like that at all. It is It is almost as if as you read the narrative, Paul got there, he did all of these miracles, but we don't read of anybody getting saved and we don't read of Paul evangelizing anybody. And so we begin to ask the question, did Paul during those three months establish a church there? Now some people would say, yes, verse 10 is evidence that Paul established a church there. Read verse 10. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. Now some people look at that and they say, that is the mark of genuine Christian maturity and love that as their spiritual father was leaving the island for his trip to Rome, which he does in verse 11, as he was leaving the island, that the Christians on that island who had been taught by him and established in that church by Paul during those three months that he was there would have supplied him with everything that he needed. They would have given him out of their own store to provide for him. That's characteristic of Paul's churches, isn't it? That's something that we see the Philippians doing, the Thessalonians doing, sharing in their resources to help the apostle. Some people would say that's evidence that there was a genuine church there. But on the other hand, I would argue, it's also possible that just because of their respect and their appreciation for all that he had done for them, whether they were believers or not, that they would have said, hey, let us help you out a little bit. Let us give back something to you that you gave to us. So it is not necessarily true that he started a church there. But on the other hand, tradition says that Paul did establish a church there and that Publius was its first pastor. Now, I don't think you can trust anything that tradition says other than just to note that it's tradition that says it and not Scripture. But on the other hand... Luke doesn't say anything about a church being established there or Christians being established there on the island. So was there a church started there by Paul during those three months' time that he was on the island of Malta? I don't know. It's curious to me that Luke leaves that out. But Paul was healing these people, and he was healing them, and they weren't believers when he was healing them. He was healing them, and they were unbelievers. And the gospel of Jesus Christ came to the island of Malta in the person of Paul, and it was there for three months, and then Paul left, and we have no record as to how fruitful his ministry was there, or how productive it was there, or what he did, or even if there was a church established. Now here's what I want you to notice, verses 1 through 10 out of chapter 28. You and I now begin to see one of the reasons for all of the events in chapter 27. Do you realize that? Remember the ship voyage and the difficulty and the winds and the affliction, and the fourteen days at sea, and being blown about the ocean and landing on the island, and all of the affliction, all the difficulty and the danger and the trials and everything of chapter twenty seven we get to the end of chapter twenty seven we say, "What in the world, what's the purpose of all of that? Why would the Lord allow that to happen Now we get into chapter twenty eight and we begin to see, "Ah, maybe God had a plan in all of that. you think maybe God had a reason He didn't want Paul and Caesarea for the winter why?" Publius' father was sick. He didn't want Paul at Fair Havens. He didn't want Paul in the Port of Phoenix. He didn't want Paul on the island of Crete, wintering there. He wanted Paul on Malta. Why? Because Publius' father was sick. Now, I don't think that we get all of the reasons why the events of chapter 27 happened, but we can begin to see now that we're in chapter 28 that, oh, there was a hand involved in this. There was a reason for all of this. We begin now to see the fruit in all of this. And friends, this tells me something that you and I need to be reminded of. We know this intuitively, but we need to be reminded of this. Many times we don't understand the purpose of the storm until we're outside of the storm. And it's when we're in the storm that we begin to say, God, why is this happening? Who are you? What are you doing and who are you allowing to do this and why are you allowing all of this to happen? And we begin to look for meaning and reason and purpose in the midst of the storm and it's not always apparent. Sometimes it's not until we get into the next chapter that we can look back on the previous chapter of our lives and say, "Ah, now I understand. Now I see what happens. But you know what we typically do? We go through the storm. In the middle of the storm, we say, why is this happening? Why is God doing this? We question our faith. We question this. We question that. We question the goodness of God. The storm ends, and then we don't stop and look around and say, okay, now what did God do through all of that? What was He trying to teach me? You know, when you go to school and you take a course, If you fail the course, you don't pay attention, you don't learn the lessons of the course, and you fail the test, what happens? You've got to repeat the course. Right? So next time the storm comes, you get on the other side of it, pause for a minute say, What did the Lord do through all of that? What did I learn? What did others learn? What did God bring out of that? You're not going to know all of the purposes. You're not going to know all of the reasons. But you can stand in chapter 28 and look back on the previous chapter and say, Okay, I can see some good things. And heaven, the glory of God, will unfold for us for all of eternity countless other good things that happened in chapter 27 that we didn't even know about. But now we begin to see that there were some good things that happened. There's more to do with miracles, and we'll look at the miracle of resurrection next week. Let's bow our heads together, and we will prepare ourselves for our communion service. Father, we thank you for your perfect word. We don't always understand everything that happens in our lives, but we know that your word assures us that no difficulty and no trial will ever be wasted that you have a way of bringing good out of everything evil and everything wrong and every trial and difficulty that we face. We thank you that we can trust you and that nothing in our lives is without purpose and nothing in our lives is wasted, but by your grace you bring it all to our good when we are loved by you and called by you to eternal conformity to the person of Christ. Thank you, God, for telling us what you do about the subject of miracles in these next couple weeks as we look at different miracles and the teaching of the Bible on miracles. We pray that you'd help us to understand the purpose of them and not to put you in a box and not to misunderstand them, but to see from Scripture what you have revealed to bring our lives into conformity with that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.